Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another of our mini-series of property news updates. There's been a lot of news going on in the past two weeks. Indeed, the budget seems to like it was months ago. And with the banking crisis and everything unfolding, I thought it would be great to get our old mate Adam Lawrence in to have a few discussions about some of those things that have been going on in not just the world of property, but the whole economic world that affects property. So welcome, Adam. Welcome back. You're a staple of the show now. (laughs) Thanks for having me again, Rod. I'm looking forward to my badge or whatever I get for the 10th appearance or whatever it is, you know. We might have to send you a big coffee cup with some branding on or something like that. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, So, I mean, should we start on the budget? Because actually, normally that's quite a big thing property developers listening out for. It seems like it was months ago, but it actually wasn't just because there's been so much going on. There wasn't a huge amount in there of much interest for property people. I think the only thing I got from it was, which actually wasn't in the main notes, you had to really delve deep into it, was about true neutrality for developers and the credits that are being just considered (laughs) at the moment in order to get developments through because they did acknowledge that there's about 120,000 units that are held up because of nutrient neutrality. So the idea is something similar to a carbon credit style kind of offering. We'll see how that goes. It sounds a bit dubious, but look, anything to increase supply is probably a good thing. I mean, what what were your thoughts? Was there anything else that I missed that's relevant? Carbon credits is the answer to everything, right? I think it's probably one of those where it's more about the broader points and also maybe on what wasn't in there in a way, because, you know, I've been expecting capital gains to change for some time. They're probably leaving that to the next Labour administration if it is going to be Labour, although they are polling a bit better. I mean, you know, we start, we had a few nurseries we'd reached out to in the past sort of 18 months or things that had just come across the desk. Obviously, the change in childcare stuff made that look a bit more attractive. So they can be really interesting from a property perspective because there's all sorts of we're obviously looking at ones that own their own buildings rather than a leasing space. And there's all sorts of weird and wonderful setups that have got nurseries on, which have got sort of development angles to them. And I guess we've just got to mention the pensions side of things because that's significant for, you know, it's everybody's in a limited company these days and that means that you know corporation tax is going up etc etc it's about time something was done on the pensions front which at least it was although if you listen to rachel reeves she's telling us that's all going to be very short-lived and she's going to reverse all of that unless you work for the nhs or however that's going to work in reality which seems like it might be challenged under discrimination law against anything well, else. So let's see what happens, shall we? Let's see what happens. Yeah, certainly the pension thing is, I mean, the idea of the government is to get as many people back into work, skilled labour, things like that. So the idea of childcare means you can go to work. Why they have to wait till 2025 to start it, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's to get sort of nurseries ready for the additional kind of hours because nurseries, on the other hand, will be will be pushing against the government, saying, well, they need higher funding, which they seem to be getting. And then, obviously, pensions is people hit their lifetime allowance and just think, well, what's the point in working now? Because 
my uh, the tax treatment on, on anything I earn above this point is just so punitive that is it really worth it when I just sit at home and enjoy the rest of my days? Whereas actually now it allows them to put more into their pension, increase their pension pots, which is there's no limit now. I mean, if we remember back in 2015, I think it was 1.8 million and that's dropped over time to just above 1, 1 million sort of as of a month ago, I think it was a million 170 or a million and 70 or something like that. So it's definitely a big kind of bonus for those higher earners, but it is definitely the higher earners and the amount of proportion of society that's going to actually see some benefit of that is to be seen. I guess the government's argument will more people in work allows actually it to drip through the, the system, but we'll see if that happens. But yeah, apart from that, not much else. No. Do you see it getting people back? to? I could see it keeping people in work, Rod, but I just can't really see it getting people back to work once you've retired. It seems a few maybe, but they they, they were saying they reckon 110,000 people in the in the age bracket, but not in the workforce at the moment, will come back into the workforce on the back of all of this. But that sounded very ambitious. Well, you don't know. I mean, I think you've got some people get bored and, things like that and then the other side is with inflation and costs going up what they thought they could could have a comfortable retirement on might actually be different now and so they might be thinking you know what another couple of years work and then i can have that retirement i wanted but yeah yeah possibly (laughs) so next point then should we discuss michael gove as we're kind of talking about the government and things like that. Might be the nicest thing we've ever said about him, to be honest. So why not? Yeah, why not? It will definitely be the nicest thing we've ever said. So this is about the news of Michael Goh's reaction to rent controls that was brought up in Parliament the other day. And I will try and find a bit of a snippet of it. But essentially, he said, I respectfully disagree I think there are legislative changes that we can make in order to help those in the private rental sector, including the abolishment of Section 21. But if we want to ensure that there is a pipeline of affordable private rented homes for people, there are two things we need to do. First, we need to improve supply, particularly in London. And to do this, so in partnership with the Mayor of London, who's always or who's not always been as energetic as his predecessor in bringing forward new homes. Bit of a sly dig there. And then (laughs) he said the other thing we need to do is make sure there is fairness in the tax treatment of landlords and others. Wow. And he said, I look forward to working with the right honourable gentleman and others on that. A rent freeze, while often attractive, has the effect, as we unfortunately have seen in Scotland of reducing the supply of rented homes. Although I know his heart is in the right place on this issue, the methods he proposes run counter to what we both want to see, which I think is a pretty bang-on kind of conclusion, really. I think Ben Beadle, of the, the chief executive of the NRLA, needs a lot of credit here because I know he's recently spoken to Gove a couple of times and he's banging the drum on the taxation point of view. It would be one of the first times in history where the government turns something around before it's really bad. So Mm. it would be really interesting to see. And maybe it's part of next year's budget, Rod, you know, to repeal Section 24. I mean, we've seen at the moment very, very directly how much 
things that are inelastic affect people because gas is up 200% and usage went down 15%. You know, it shows people need gas so they can't really lower their demand that much. And housing is the same. You know, the more you push the price of the input up, the more that rents will go up. And of course, inflation is so rife for everyone at the moment, including the landlords. And I know you've made the point before very correctly that landlords aren't facing 10% inflation as bad as that is. Their interest costs are up 50 plus percent. Their maintenance costs are up 20 plus percent. Their insurance costs are up 15 plus percent. Which one of these is under 10%? You know, none of them realistically. So it just can't really, you can't have a functioning market. And we've got so many hundreds of thousands of units out of the sector in the last three or four years and covid really hasn't helped that either you know and i don't even know if that counts things like sa you know i've no idea whether the figures are, are that good or not so you've got you've got as people seek to draw money from active asset management because they need to keep up with these rising costs that takes more units out of the sector or maybe you sell one or two off in order to get your debt burden down to put yourself roughly in the same position when well, that's still most landlords I know that are selling in one or two unit volumes are selling into the open market. They're not selling to investors. You know, it's not investor to investor unless the property is already tenanted, in which case it keeps it in that sector. So, I mean, it's pretty positive. I mean, I think if I was him, the only thing I'd say is I'd probably gone a bit further on the rent freeze point of view, because not only does it reduce supply, as we've seen in Scotland, you know, it's got there's multiple examples around the world of where it makes the market completely dysfunctional and it leads to bad outcomes for tenants. And I think that's the argument you have to use in order to get everybody interested, because you've, you've seen all the stories in New York and Stockholm and other places where there's these illegal sublets going on. And put it this way, you can forget about your EPCs and your EICRs and all the rest of it. Right. It's really miserable conditions. And it just means someone in the black market is lifting profits out of the system still at the expense of the end tenant so it doesn't actually achieve anything you know it just achieves what you do in the black market which is ultimately non-compliance non you know against the law etc etc bad outcomes so let's hope it might have an effect within the next five years yeah people (laughs) putting capital expenses into their assets are, are less inclined to aren't they I think I wonder what you think about this. Again, it's probably a similar to the last point. Too little, too late at this point. I mean, I've the section twenty-four. I've kind of got mixed views because I'm biased, and it's probably not going to be what people feel. But actually, section twenty-four is a good thing for me. <laughs> I operate out of limited companies. It allows me to get market share. Gets rid of a lot of kind of competition. It allows me to pick up things. It's useful. So I'm not like a lot of other people where I kind of agree with it, if I'm honest. I agree with the fact that actually, if you want to run a more professional kind of organisation, it's got to be structured right. I'm not saying that that a limited company is the only way to structure things and that partnerships can't can't be professional and that sole traders can't be professional. But I get the point. And look, there's no denying that what the government has tried to do, which is to professionalise it and get maybe the non-professional landlords out of the market has worked. Like, we've seen that. Unfortunately, it's got other consequences that have happened that they didn't really factor in. And that's where we've kind of hit an issue. So I can, look, as an investor, I'm kind of, don't worry too much about the things I have no control over. 
but I want to stay nimble and adaptable. And if, I don't know, Section 24 was going to be repealed, I would still be operating from a limited company. Yeah, me too. I was beforehand and I would be afterwards. Yeah, I'm in exactly the same boat as you. Um, What do you think he might be referring to when he says about legislative changes to help people in the private sector other than the abolition of Section 21? Well, I mean, it could be like the wear and tear stuff. There's other tax things that have had issues, capital gains, maybe. Well, I doubt because it seems to be going the other way. There could be like just the level of legislation. We've got constantly new kind of license schemes coming up and things like that, that actually we've got enough legislation. There's about 200 pieces of legislation to render property. All they need to do is monitor that. They don't need new bits. What they need to do is take control of the bits that are already out there that they're not actually managing to monitor properly. So I think, I don't know, possibly that's what he means. But Yeah, I, it's funny to hear it, someone like Go talking about more legislation when, as you correctly say, there's already so much of it and it's really enforced. And I wouldn't put it past Go to blame the local authorities for not enforcing because he would see that as a central government. It's not a central government problem, is it? You know, so I didn't really... That's the one bit. I wonder what he's driving at there. So on to the next topic. Shall we talk about the banks? <laughs> really big one. And I know we can both talk about this all day long. <laughs> so let's try and give the key points. What do you make of it? What's happening in the States? How does it affect UK banks? How does it affect property investors and developers in terms of what that may mean for interest rates and liquidity as well? Yeah, great bullet points. So in the States, there's about 4,300 regional banks. Silicon Valley Bank was a big one. It was the 16th largest. So it was a serious consideration to go broke. It's the first time we've had a bank run in the proper internet era, really. You know, even in 2007, eight people were, physically queuing outside getting outside northern rock rather than going on the app and going get all my money out what great it's done in five minutes exactly and you know a lot of these tech companies are nested within bigger setups and they were getting calls from people like peter Thiel saying get your money out of svb now and you know they did more damage in a few hours than washington mutual in 2008 which took nine days to run not dry, but, you know, to be in enough trouble to collapse. Ultimately. In terms of, I think what's a good point to make is where that money then goes. So when people pull their money out, where are they putting it? Because the obvious answer is to go, well, they don't stick it all under the mattress because they haven't physically got it. Does it go into other bank accounts or is the money markets? I think what a big issue here is, is that deposits and savings accounts have not kept up with the rate of interest. And so what's yeah. happened people have decided to pull money out because they can get far better returns on the money market. So sticking it into kind of treasury bills, things like that as well. And actually that's caused a lot of it. So it's meant that if the banks maybe increase some of those deposits and thinks, yes, they wouldn't make as much profit, but they would still have liquidity. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm a bit surprised about how non-price sensitive the consumer has been on the face of it because the bigger the bank the more they've tried to keep those especially instant access rates down on the floor and it's like well hold on a second guys you know bases at four or if you're in the states you know 4.75 to five you know where's the where are you showing me the the outcome of that it's not just base 
the bond yields have been right up there as well in the short and the shorts have been higher because the yield curves have been inverted there's not a lot of excuse for not passing on some of that and you're quite right that's you imagine if you've a startup even a startup that's raised 10 million dollars you know you're not talking small beer by getting 0.07 of a percent overnight you know you're talking 7,000 bucks. So you're going to employ someone to be able to go and do that, right? And it, it might be sloshing around in the overnight market. And this is all, again, we, we're harking back to sort of 07 style banking here where there was a real return in the overnight markets and, and the bond markets before we entered the era of ZERP or whatever yeah. you want to call it, you know. So that's effectively, now, you know, <laughs> the big banks in the States have argued for years that the system is too fractured. But then, of course they have, because they'd love to swallow up a hundred of these regional banks, right? They're, they're quite self-interested. But, you know, if you think about the way that the FCA, uh, the PRA, approach this sort of thing, you don't want millions of fractured little entities because it's much harder to regulate. Back to your point about, you know, professionalising the PRS. They don't want one and two property landlords. It's too difficult to measure. It's too difficult to tax properly. Let's get rid of the bottom 20% of operators and let's uh, yeah, focus on, exactly. on quality. So these things do often lead to consolidation and there's strength in, and that's what you saw, obviously, when the, the big banks, including JP and Goldman's and people, depositing $30 billion into First Republic. It's mm-hmm. just a straightforward flex of the muscles to say, we're all supporting each other here. We've got lots of liquidity. Don't worry. Now, I can't remember what the middle part of your question was, but the last part was about liquidity. So maybe we, we part of that. What was the middle bit? So then how does how is it different in the UK and how might this affect interest rates and property investors? Sure, sure. So we're less fractured, you know, per capita. We don't have harder to get banking licenses and we don't have those hundreds and hundreds of organisations. We've still got a lot of old school mutuals that didn't, demutualize in the 80s and 90s like people like nationwide like people like nationwide did who have a much steadier business model where they're not necessarily pumping the money into long-term government bonds i mean you do have to and i know it's it's never popular to defend the bankers but i did hear a reasonable argument that said well a there's been a couple of legislative changes in the u.s over since 2013 because 2013 was when the people's bank of china said We're not buying any more U.S. bonds. We don't want to add to our position. And the U.S. government thought, well, hold on. Remember, they run a deficit, right? So they need people to buy the debt. And they thought, well, we've got these homegrown banks who can buy the debt. So they kind of encouraged people to do it. And then in 2020, they said, there's no way we'll be putting rates up really quickly because the economy won't be able to handle it. So in fairness... Everyone made their bets based on what they were told, yeah. Exactly. So the Fed have got a fair bit of the can to carry in the States. We haven't been as directly, we don't give that sort of guidance in the UK so much. The Bank of England steps sort of one step further back, really. And then it intervenes itself when it needs to, as we saw with Liz Truss in October. Yeah, the pensions and, and yeah. I mean, absolutely. also the capitalisation of, of the banks is a bit more conservative in the UK as well. That's it. And, yeah, Basel three is much yeah. more restrictive than what's happened in the States, absolutely. So, so, but the tier one capital is stronger. And this yeah. is where this will this will play out as part of this. You're absolutely right. And what you see, I mean, in the UK, most of our high street banks fairly retail. I suppose the one with the biggest big names are the biggest investment side is probably Barclays. Mm. But still, they'll have a lot of investment overseas. So they'll probably will be affected by what's happening in America. Although 
they still have those capital reserves they've got to keep doing things like that. So actually, it's not quite as it's not the same as in the US and how those banks have have delivered it. And there's also a case about hedging as well. I get the point about, well, central banks told us it was going to be this way. So we made bets on that. I mean, yeah, but you've also got to take responsibility for black swan events and you've got to hedge against those uh, with interest. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And And that seems to be what's happened with Credit Suisse, which is the same, a similar issue. Rates have gone up. They've had these long term bonds that obviously they can't get the liquidity to to service if people if people are taking deposits out. And so what that has ended up with is something that's quite strange on the face of it is that these tier one bonds have essentially been reduced down the capital stack below equity so they've been transferred it's in all the small print if people had read it when they got those bonds so people can't moan too much about it but it does set an interesting precedent which i think we'll go on to when we discuss evergrand about their restructuring debt because it's quite similar and it seems like evergrand are taking this chance in what's going on elsewhere to go oh this is normal now because we everyone else is doing it so let's crack yeah. on it too I, I think that's bang on i think credit I think the Swiss government haven't really missed the opportunity to click you know, the Credit Suisse thing, like the Deutsche Bank thing. It's been going on for years and years and years. Yeah. And it's kind of like, right, this is the event where we force it all through. But I mean, I do feel, I don't, you're quite right in what you say about the AC1s and everything, but you can't use the word bond and have it below equity. And, and that's effectively, I think that's the crux of the legal case that the AC1 bondholders are going to bring. You know, it's like, hang on a second. How can it be deranked below common stock? Well, I think the argument there is in the fine print. It said that it could be converted under these scenarios, which were scenarios that were always thought would never ever happen. So, but are you suggesting they might have mispriced the risk in a complex bond instrument? Now, where have we ever heard that before, Rod? Has that ever happened before? Exactly. So going back to property, how does this affect us as property investors in the UK? And does it? Yeah. So as you said, I agree with you. We're in a stronger position. Ultimately, the bank stress test was better covered. Yes, we have international exposure, but the building society model, as I was saying, is pretty boring. You get deposits, you lend them out, you securitize. So you refill the pot and then you lend them out again. But while things like, while MBSs, mortgage-backed securities are performing, you don't have massive risk to deal with. And then there's always the interbank lending, which is now represented by Sonia. So banks lend to each other at a certain rate. I was speaking to someone, yet, uh, one of the challenger banks yesterday, and they said to me, they're now pricing their fixed products, which they haven't used a lot of fixed products, but they understand the need for them in this market, three and five year Sonia plus a margin. And that's how they're doing it. And they only change the rate. That's set at the beginning of the month. And it only changes when Sonia changes by 0.25 or more. And I said, that's every day. At the I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the point of why it they've done fixed it. Fixed so, in name only. But it's good to see that Sonia with premium being applied, I think, because it's where they're getting their money from, ultimately. So there are also the deposit takers, as we've talked about extensively, who, as you just said, are offering some pretty paltry rates at the moment. So they can provide the liquidity at a lower price out to the market as long as they've got their op costs covered rather than lending it to other banks. So 
there is a risk of liquidity drying up when things stop performing. You know, people pull. There are lots and lots of investors who are talking at the moment about how much in cash that they're holding. But one thing I can tell you for sure is when inflation is 10 percent, it's very, very difficult. If you work for a family office and you've got to go to one of the big chiefs and say, we need to be 25 percent in cash at the moment. What happens when they slap you around the head and say, well, hold on, we're going to lose 10 percent of that in the next 12 months or something. So. Why are we holding that much potentially in cash? Because inflation isn't under control yet, guys. And that's what, you know, the other day's inflation figures have proven. So there is a liquidity risk, but is it a significant one? I don't really think so. There might be some funny pricing that goes on. And it will, you, you, I think what you've seen over the last six months is some of the deposit takers, and I'm thinking specifically of Paragon when I say this, but there are other ones, have really pressed their advantage by being able to take deposits a lower rate, including the cost of managing those deposits, than they can borrow from the other bigger banks? Of course you would. Why wouldn't you? If you can make more margin by borrowing at a lower rate and lending it out, you're going to borrow from the lower rate. It's like if you mortgage, you're going to go for the lowest price. Of course you are. Absolutely. And they have have been quicker. While the main banks have been languishing at 1% and 1.5% and 2%, They've been quicker to come up to 3% when Sonia has been 4 So as long as they can manage the operation for less than 1%, which in this digital age, it should be costing them a fraction of that. Absolutely. Extra margin, better business model. Savings are sticky always as long as there isn't a run on the bank, right? And that's why everybody has to be so keen to avoid runs on the bank. Sure. And I mean, so in terms of kind of really how it's affecting us is, is interest rates. And that's really about base rates moving up or down and how that affects the gilt market and how that affects Sonia. So in terms of kind of these bank runs, it seems to be obviously the Fed put rates up by 25 basis points yesterday. And I think one of the comments they made was that the issue with the banks is is really akin to another 25 basis points increase. So they would have been putting it up by 50. But because of that, they've dropped it. And I think over in the UK, we're a bit safer there. Um, I'll go on to kind of the interest rates. But I think that's kind of where it can affect us if it does affect us. But I don't think nearly a bigger an issue for us with rates as maybe some of the other things that we can talk about, which I think it doesn't put the fire out of inflation as much as they wanted to. But the Fed are notorious for raising things until they, they're, you know, the impatience of the American Federal Reserve. They want to go until they break something. And, and then this week or these past two weeks, everyone's been saying, well done, you've broken something, stop. And they're like, we're not stopping, but we'll slow down on that basis. Yeah. We, we just but need it, to be sure we've broken it. Yeah, because every little bit of inflation that stays in the system for a month longer is self-perpetuating. You know, I mean, yeah. we've seen in the from the UK inflation perspective, we've seen a few of the strikes starting to be resolved. I wonder how yesterday's inflation number will affect that because, because of the way know, people into 9% over two years where we might well be seeing an average inflation of 9% over a two-year period and people are going to be 9% worse off and there's going to be a problem there. Exactly, and this is what we keep going on about a wage price spiral. If you continue to have wages, exactly. you, can't, you can't have both. Let's get on to that in a bit, but I think if we can talk about Evergrande after kind of discussing Credit Suisse, What's happening with that? For listeners that don't know what Evergrande is, do you want to just give a quick... Sure. So one of the very biggest Chinese property developers that had many, many billions in bonds issued, not just to Chinese investors, but internationally. 
300 um, billion in liabilities, I think. Who defaulted on some bond payment debt back in 2021, actually, if you can believe it. So, like all of these things, like, like Credit Suisse, like Deutsche, sitting in the system, not really imploded. There's a thought that maybe the Chinese government will provide some form of bailout because they don't want the, the whole sector to struggle. But the backdrop, which we know we're near struggling with in places like the UK, is that they've built so much extra stock in certain places. 40% of new developments were lying empty. And now the population of China is going down. It's not going up. So yeah. they built this stuff to grow into without looking at their own demographics, which is sure to show they're not going to need to. Now, of course, that's not necessarily fair because the population was urbanising at a really significant rate. But of course, COVID has affected that in fits and starts as well. But they've got all this product they can't necessarily sell. You know, they have different models whereby they get people to pay over the course of 10 years or this or that or the other. Um, so people are paying for something that then hasn't been built in the end or yes. because the money's gone out in servicing this 300 billion of debt. And then you um, had the government trying to bail out their deposits that they put down and various things like that, didn't they? I think what's happened now is there was this case of bear in mind 300 billion of liabilities uh this is you say one of the biggest it's the biggest property company in the world yeah to give an idea real estate or residential real estate in china is one third of their gdp so when you say the government doesn't want it to kind of come crashing down damn right <laughs> because it will have massive consequences for everything else this the debt that they're talking about now, which has been in the news this week, is twenty one million dollars of overseas bonds that they're looking to restructure. So twenty one billion sounds a lot, but when you've got three hundred billion of seven percent of your debt, right? <laughs> so what they're doing with this, and this is why it's kind of related to the Credit Suisse, is they're looking to change those bonds. So they're looking to convert them into new bonds where they haven't said what actually those new bonds will do. And also equity linked investments, which would be backed by Evergrande, but also two more profitable subsidiaries, which are based in Hong Kong. So, again, this has not been agreed yet, but it seems to be kind of moving in the right directions. And it will be interesting to see how that if that is agreed, what that means for the rest of that debt and how it's operated. Because like you say, you've got lots of buildings that are lying empty, that are half built, some that haven't even started being built, that have kind of lost money and they've got, not got the money to pay for it. So there's all sorts of kind of issues over there. And when you've got 300 billion in liabilities, there's an awful lot of kind of downfall. And going back to the banking crisis, one of the other issues that is on the concern in the US is not just what happens in these long-term bonds if there's a bank run, but also what happens in servicing debt for commercial real estate and what happens there because that's seen in the same regard. So you could then see real big implications for commercial real estate as well. Now, if that happens here, I mean, I think the chances of that happening here are less, but they're certainly not kind of not out of the water, really. Well, the problems start when there's non-performance, don't they? That's when the problems start. So obviously we had a significant amount of non-performance in 2020, but it was patched over by the amount of stimulus there was by from the government in the commercial real estate sector. All the grants flowed through to the landlords, potentially. 
for people who didn't own their own buildings. So it's going to be interesting because we've also had a re-rating this year, haven't we, in terms of commercial valuations for the valuation office. And it's interesting to see quite how much retail has been rated downwards, which ideally keeps them serviceable and keeps the shops viable and is what needed to happen quite dramatically. Well, the problem with that, though, is existing investors who have investments in that oh, yeah. then have debt on it that then need to refinance and it's been downgraded so yes it's good because people can't get the loan to values when they go up but actually then people will find they're a negative equity and can't service those loans if they stay on variable rates this is it and you you say all the time you know commercial such a broad space you know the idea that a bank can come out and say we lend 75 percent against a commercial investment is suicidal really because there are parts of the commercial sector which you'd happily do that on, but you wouldn't want to do that against a hotel or, a, you know, I mean, interest rate coverage. It just doesn't cover you enough because of the amount of volatility, because yeah. most of these are Sonia linked or or base linked, right? Especially yeah. the historical ones. Of course, everybody's fixing today, but that's today. That's not the legacy. But if you think go back to Evergrande, you know, I don't know what the secondary market for that 21 billion of bonds looked like. But I'm guessing they're trading at 30 cents on the dollar or something around that. So the other thing you have to consider as an institutional investor is, well, if you and this is what hasn't happened with the banks in the US, if you work on a mark to market basis, i.e. you revalue your book based on what it's worth. Yeah. You might not want to crystallize those losses. Yeah. But that is where they are in reality. So if you're offered a solution that maybe makes it more like 50 cents on the dollar, risky though it might be, it might be better than fighting it and then saying, well, actually, we'll spin off these two subsidiaries, then we'll let the main thing go down. Exactly. And that's kind of why bondholders are starting to agree to changing something that's a bond to something that's equity linked. And can I just say, Rod, I think this has got massive implications in the median term for real estate around the world because bondholders are having a really rough time. They took a bath last year. They're now below, some of them are below equity in the capital stack. This is not what they signed up for with bonds, right? So what's the only asset, major asset class in the world left that can perform like a bond, right? Real estate. So I expecting a massive flow of institutional money over the next decade towards real estate. Now, with the UK might benefit from that as a marketplace because we're so immature compared to a because you, you you'll probably turn around to me and say, well, hold on, in Europe or in the US, it's already quite a mature marketplace. There isn't necessarily room for many hundreds of billions of dollars to flow into it. But I think I guess people will be looking around the world at the less institutionally mature marketplaces and say, well, let's get stuck into the ones that have got stable regulatory and political frameworks you know it's just 200 pieces of political legislation for <laughs> but they like legislation right exactly so but on that point then going back to the pensions and getting people back into work most people's pensions are heavy in bonds and so actually the value of it's gone down so again it's another reason why they might be trying to come back into that Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. 
They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again, for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. That's another really good point because, you know, we've seen that that landscape of 2016 onwards as bond yields took a real dive downwards, you know, the lowest point in, say, 2021. When people were doing things like DB transfers in their pensions, you know, they were getting huge multiples of transfer values. Now you're seeing a point where pension funds, I mean, part of this is also, I think, related to venture capital and private equity. The sector absolutely ballooned, but the reality was it was underpinned on cheap debt. So you just went and found a big company like KKR did with Boots, loaded it up with debt, fantastic returns on equity because you've got so much debt and then skimmed off the profits. But when that debt goes from 2% coupon to 6% coupon, as it pretty much has done, then when you've got to restructure those bonds, you know, you've got a big problem because you're either paying out three times the interest or you can't afford to because you haven't got the free cash flow in order to do that. You haven't got it's a three hundred percent increase in your in your costs. Not many businesses can sustain that. So I'm expecting VC and private equity to have a, a rough time, and of course that feeds back into your point about the pensions because pensions had to get involved in VC funds and private equity in order to try and get the returns they needed in order to pay their their obligations. Absolutely, and that goes back to property. How does it operate? Well, you can have it as a as a commodity, it's got that use of to live in or work in. You can have it as fixed income by kind of not having debt on it, getting the income regularly, or you can have it as most of the PRS is or as most of, of the rest is, which is private equity, where you 
get a bit of debt on it, get some mortgage and, and increase those returns. But you've got to remember that increased returns is increased losses when it goes the other way. Absolutely. But I think you made the, the critical point there is the utility of it. Because the utility, especially in resi, is it's a point that's not made often enough. It's so significant. It's, you know, it's quite literally the bottom of the hierarchy of needs. Everybody needs a roof over the head, right? And the utility is huge compared to some of these paper instruments or derivatives, which have no real utility. They're just they're just gambling instruments, really, to be honest, which I'm fine with that. But that's what they are. So let's move on to inflation. So yesterday, so we were recording this Tuesday, very early morning before the UK brought out kind of its base rate changes. And yesterday we had the inflation figures come through from the ONS, which showed that inflation had increased or CPI had increased from 10.1% to 10.4% from January to February. That Most of that increase was made up of food inflation, which has gone up to 18.2%, which is the highest it's been since the 70s. So the, the cause of that is things like weather in some of the countries that UK gets majority of its exports for, issues with crops happening there, also energy prices here from our farmers, meaning that they couldn't get the crops they were needing to because actually it just wasn't worth it from an energy point of view. What hasn't really been reported on so much about yesterday's readings is other other kind of measures of inflation. So that was the CPI. The CPIH, which includes housing costs, that is a big issue. So although we've had, sorry, going back to the CPI, although energy costs have come down, okay, that's come down on the wholesale market. But retail, not so much, because when we look at the CPIH, okay, which includes housing, what you see is that actually it's gone up to 9.2% from 8.8%. And the largest contributor to that is housing and household services, e.g. energy. So actually, those energy rates have really hurt homeowners, renters, things like that. So although everyone's saying, why should we increase rates if most of the inflation is from kind of a supply a supply side issue with food and things like that, actually there's more to it because there's still quite big inflation increasing through your energy, through your housing as well. And then if you go to the core inflation, which takes out all of those more volatile things like energy, food, housing, that's still gone up from 5.8% to 6.2%. So that kind of argument about the food and all that sort of stuff is is irrelevant because it's still gone up on the core side. And so we're seeing that although interest rates have rocketed up in an incredibly short period of time, it's been swallowed up on the whole, actually not bringing inflation down yet. And is it the case that actually to bring inflation down, it needs to continue to go up a bit more and what how will that bring inflation down is it going to be done through a recession um are they concerned that actually a recession will be more problematic than inflation i'd always argue that inflation is a much going to negatively impact far more people in the long term than a short-term recession will with kind of loss of jobs and things like that but again it's there's 
they're in a really dif- difficult position. So what do you think is going to happen in terms of maybe, or what do you think, maybe that's the wrong question, what is going to happen and what should happen, <laughs> maybe are two different things, in terms of kind of what the central bank can do, again, how it's going to affect mortgage prices and capital values that come for property investors, really? Well, firstly, magnificent summary and loads and loads to unpack there. But in order to go to the question first, before I forget it again, I think you've got to remember the central bank is a pretty basic organisation right? in terms of the levers they can actually pull. They can talk about stuff to try and calm people down. That's the, the main weapon that they use. That's then the they can Mark con- Carney forward guidance extraordinary. Exactly. Yeah. Or they can try and they can control the interest rate because that's their remit. Now, of course, they can buy bonds and they can do some other bits as well. And they work closely with the Treasury. Of course they do. But that's the only direct lever that they've got. So this economy is hotter than anybody is giving it credit for. And that's why the Office for Budget Responsibility has increased the forecast of what's going to happen this year quite so, and over the next few years quite so dramatically. But what those forecasts are missing is there has to be some kind of break point. So there's only two ways out of this, right? Soft landing and recession. There's the only two ways. There aren't any, there's no other magic dust. Now, soft landing will happen more by fluke than it will by skill, realistically. But you have to remember, go back to the conversation we've just had. It takes months and years for these things to filter through. There's something like 2 million people this year dropping off a fixed rate mortgage. When they do, they'll be dropping off rates like 2.1 and 1.7, and they'll be going on to rates like 4.5 and things like that, right? So they're going to more than double their interest, which won't more than double their mortgage payment because they're almost all repayment. But it's going to put their mortgage payment up by 30 to 50%, right? That automatically has a cooling impact on disposable income. Consumption is the thing that drives the economy and drives inflation. And that money will be out of their pockets. Now, if that's supplanted by wage increases of 7 or 10% or whatever, they still got the same amount of money, but they can still buy fewer goods with it because inflation is where it is. But because of the government price cap, they did control inflation on energy back in October. But because we're still trading at prices above the cap, that drop hasn't actually filtered through to a drop in people's pricing. All it filters through to is the government needing to borrow less money to guarantee the cap. So we still need things to fall further in order to really see a benefit. And they still, the second order consequences, and the trouble is things happen where someone, I've seen a number of businesses do this. They've seen the quotes for the electricity to renew their contracts and just said, do you know what, can't, this is just ridiculous. I can't do this anymore. Can't do it anymore. Numbers don't work. So instead of putting the prices up by 20%, which is where food, is, you know, supermarkets have to do what they have to do. They're not increasing their margins here. They will make bigger profits. And this is where the press doesn't help because they might make... I think BP BP have made X amount more profit. Well, of course they have, but as a percentage, it's not more. But also, and inflation adjusted, but also the profit that came from the UK market was down, but nobody reports that. It's because they do so much international business that they made so much more money, Right nobody's interested in that argument. They just want to shout at the energy companies for price gouging when they're getting taxed left, right and centre and they're actually putting a lot back into the economy. So, you know, if you had a load of traders who bought a load of cheap energy in 2021 when it was price was going upwards 
and everybody could see the writing on the wall, and then they make a profit from that. Well, do you know what? That's capitalism at the end of the day. So if they bought all that cheap energy and energy had halved in price, they'd have been declaring losses and no one would have shed a tear for them then. So it is, I'm afraid that just is the market being what it is. But, you know, inflation and CPI, you know, CPIH, as you as you correctly say, and core, if we were having this discussion in a US context, you know, the Fed are obsessed with the core because that's what they, and 6% is what they see as a real, a real danger point. So we've got this significant entrenched problem that is going to run and run and run. And people, there's this kind of misconception that, in the 70s, the problem was the wage price spiral, it went above inflation in order to try and keep up and to stop the strikes that were inevitably occurring. But because it went up, it then dragged inflation upwards like a cyclone. Just because wage increases are below inflation, which is extremely important, right? But still, if you're putting 7% on, people have still got 7% more money to spend, right? So that, And they will spend it because there's there's a squeeze on their cost of living. They don't want People are good at being reactive and adaptive, and they're terrible at forecasting what's going to happen. But I think there is one other thing that, that this debate needs to, to also include, and that is there was still a lot of savings from COVID. You know, household savings balances increased massively. So some of this increase has been absorbed by the savings that people had. Now, when are those savings dry? Well, you know, I don't know if you can rely on the ONS for that stuff because it's all published about six months in arrears. And that will make a difference. But that that has partially fueled the fire. And what we've seen, for, which has happened more than it has done for a long time, is consumer credit card spending is up significantly again. Now, that's not a sustainable amount of growth. And if you look at the interest rate on credit cards, it's actually a pretty much a flat line it's nearly regulated, you know, it's pretty much a flat line for the last 10 years. So that's not sensitive to interest rates because people are paying 25 to 40% APR anyway. So there's not really, the, the premium on that is not really the important thing. What's the important thing is the default rate, right? And that's the thing. And that's what might might well be increasing. So it's, I, I've said it for two years, I'm a broken record. It's going to be stronger for longer. And February's figure just proves that because nobody saw it coming, hmm. you know, and in terms of how it compares to kind of other markets, we mentioned US and they're called, yeah, they're at 6%. So theirs has been dropping, whereas Eurozone has also dropped to 8.5% as well. So we are a bit of an anomaly here in terms of what's happening. So how does that break? And then you mentioned the 70s and kind of the wage price spiral again, Similar things, like although it's under it's under the uh, level of inflation at the moment, most of these wage increases, but it's still kind of important to look at well, what happened to house prices in the seventies? In that decade, they went up by about four hundred percent, which is insane, absolutely insane. Um, so again, <laughs> if you're getting fixed debt at that level, like happy days, it's not too bad. But then if, if actually it all breaks and, and it comes down like it did at the end of the 70s or 80s, then we see a house price crash. So Yeah, this is, this is bad news for the economy and society overall. But for property investors, it's very unlikely to be bad news. Although I would argue we'd rather see a sustained period at 4 and 5% than deal with the fallout of double digit because exactly. psychologically it's very bad. And like I said, it will impact these strike negotiations with the unions quite negatively. And also, timing is everything when it's volatile. 
Because yeah. all this kind of talk about time in the market is better than timing the market is nonsense when you've got leverage. Because timing the market is absolutely key. Because when, like you say, if you've got double digit and it's got to drop, like it did 1980, 81, after this huge sustained period of inflation, I mean, if you got caught at that point having to refinance and then you were in negative equity, you were bust. Yeah. Uh, and that's just what happened. And so people have to be very wary of that when they're refinancing and pulling out more money. Don't forget, we've had increases of 20% on, on house prices on average the last two years. So to say, oh, right, I'm going to pull some money out here and then, I don't know, go and spend it on holidays or what, what have you. I mean, it's a dangerous thing because if it drops again at that point in time, I'm not saying on average it's going to go up over 10 years, but you get points where it drops quite heavily and it's about weathering those storms. And if you've got all your debt, like we say, again, talk about broken records, don't have all your debt, <laughs> fixed debt expiring at the same time and all that sort of stuff. So and I think we've been talked a number of times over the recent years about 75% LTV, but of course, the other issue is people have gone to 80 and 85 on some HMO products, and those 85s are not going to be there. Now, even if the market has moved upwards, what about when the interest coverage ratio doesn't protect you anymore? And this is where you'll see some interesting scenarios. Well, this is why you have these banks bringing out um, rates that are still 75% loan to value with what looks like lower rates, but huge application fees and yeah. setup fees. Yeah. Because to get to that loan to value, the the coverage ratio needs to be low. So they can't charge too much interest. So we're putting it all on the application fee. So the total cost throughout the loan is still going to be higher for them. It's still beneficial, but your monthly repayments are less. So again, it's the same sort of story there. People have got to be careful on that. Yeah, and you've got to look at the total cost of your debt, not just the pay rate. Absolutely. But it is... On, on the flip side of that, the product teams and that, I, I applaud them because it's quite an entrepreneurial way to solve a problem. So, well, well done. They might just be kicking the can five years down the road if there's a if there's a wobble, but let's see. Sure. And and look, sometimes kicking the can is the thing to do when you've got a volatile period, isn't it? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Look, Adam, that's been fantastic. There's been a huge amount of stuff there. Just for the listeners, should we just give a quick plug to the Boardroom Club, which is something that you and I run with some SME property businesses that come on. It's a program that we have currently got space for two more businesses to come on that. It's a 12-month program where we essentially break down the business, give it the right foundations from which to grow sustainably. It's not really for new businesses, but it's for businesses that feel that they need some support in growth. Anything else you want to add to that? Probably just to say, I can't believe we've been running it for nearly three years. That's incredible. We've seen a load of people through the program, satisfied customers left, right and centre, which is great. And there's a lot of network value. I know that people in the group have been doing business with each other as well, which has been fantastic. And we can help on risk management, growth, scaling, growing your asset base, making sure your downside risks are protected and all of the stuff that we talk about all the time, really, Rod. And it's been a pleasure and I hope we've got many more years ahead of us. Absolutely. So if anyone is interested in that, have a look at the show notes. I'll leave our emails there. Feel free to get in contact with us about that. 
And Adam, thanks a lot. And I'll see you, I'm sure, very soon for another episode, whether it's one of our quarterly masterminds or maybe another news one. Always looking forward to it, Rod. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.